know what really makes us mad is wasting money on CDs with only one or two good songs. Yeah. Tell them about punk. What's up, posers? Welcome to Punk Lotto Pod. I'm your co-host, Justin Hensley. I'm your other co-host, Dylan Hensley. And this is the show where we choose one year at random and select one punk, hardcore, emo, or punk-adjacent album from that year to discuss. Today, I assigned you the year to talk about. And we go through these weird like cycles of, we could talk about this, we could talk about that. And then I guess... I'm always wanting to lean lately, at least in the last couple months we've been doing just solo shows. I'm like, we should try and cover an album or an artist we haven't covered before. And then I am also like trying to go with like, also, what's going to get us the most listens? (laughs) And I never know what actually will get us the most listens. Got it. (laughs) I can't. You promised me airplay. (laughs) Uh, And it's right in our Q zone. Um, Uh, (laughs) Palm tree girls. <laughs> it's exactly fits our record. It's perfect. Perfect. <laughs> Actually, kind of. <laughs> yeah, there is this uh, battle that we go through every time we're making selections, and we're like, well, we could just pick like one of my all-time favorite albums and talk about that. But there's a chance we've mentioned that album on the show before or talked about it in some way. And so lately, and I'm just more like, let's do something I'm completely unfamiliar with. And uh, that's how we kind of wind up on some of the selections we have. But if you want to hear us talk about albums from this year that we are a little more familiar with, head over to our Patreon. One dollar gets you access to all of our weekly bonus audio. And last week's episode was a bracketology of albums from the year 2006. So it's a single elimination tournament where we talk about albums and vote on which ones we like the best. And I guess we could we could give people an idea of what we're talking about on that episode. Uh, we've got some Hawthorne Heights. We've got the Lawrence Arms. We've got Boy Sets Fire and Young Widows and the Marked Men. And I'm not going to name all of them because I want some of it to be a surprise. But unless you go to our social media page and then see the actual bracket and the head to head of all the bands. He's, but he's always trying to hide things like don't say the name of the album. It's then <laughs> the title. I guess I like treat a podcast like a radio show still where it's like no one can see what you're going to talk about before you do it. <laughs> and we've got a special announcement coming up <laughs> yeah maybe that's how I, I wanted to be an announcement but i've already made the announcement on social media <laughs> days before this episode yeah, went up. Is, we are promoting it in advance <laughs> yeah but head over to the patreon you get all of our weekly bonus audio you get all of our written content all of the video content of the moon pies for misfits where i try drinks and s- Snacks. I've tried one snack I've no, uh, on that show. Um, watching people eat is not nearly as fun to watch as uh, drinks. But <laughs> mm. Mm. it's gotta um, <laughs> get away for them to chew and swallow. Yeah, that is Patreon.com/slash/PunkLottoPod. Also, if you do our ten dollar tier, that's a one-time ten dollar donation. You get to choose the album that we devote an entire episode to. So if that sounds interesting to you, head on over there. They're fun. Do we have, we need... do we have any of those in the bank? We um, don't, do we? Not right now, no. We, we've, we've cashed them all out. So Time to make a deposit. <laughs> also, uh, by the time this episode goes up, it's a little bit old news, but I did guest 
on the podcast Punk Rock and Pinfalls with our good friend Steve Long. Uh, and I talked about uh, AEW and New Japan's Forbidden Door. Uh, we went over two hours. <laughs> we when we used, I used to do the wrestling show with him around the ring, and we would we started that show going. We only want we're gonna do like thirty to forty five minutes, and then the first episode was like an hour and a half, and we were like, well, that's just the first episode, and then we just got longer and longer from there. So uh, when me and Steve are talking wrestling, we will go way too long. So. <laughs> Head on over there. Is that is that too long? I get no. the impression that wrestling podcasts are like all four hours long. My favorite wrestling podcast is three hours every single week. Yeah. And they still do bonus content <laughs> multiple times a week. So uh, I yeah. saw it. I saw a TikTok re- just like today. Actually, I say recently is today. Someone saying talking about people trying to say what the nerd sport is. I don't remember what the examples were. They were like, maybe if they know better, it's like Magic the Gathering or Dungeons and Dragons or something like that. Like, but the, the their point was, no, the true nerd sport is wrestling. <laughs> like, because it, it's actually real. Like, it's it's people doing stuff. Yeah, it is sports entertainment. It is of an athletic nature. Yeah, but the entire culture of it is the most nitpicky, detailed. <laughs> encyclopedic nerd mentality <clears throat> yeah <laughs> yeah head on over there and then i'm also supposed to guest on an upcoming episode of one band five songs with dave brown so uh be on the lookout for that i'll obviously share that whenever that goes live but teasing that out for future but yeah let's get into it 2006 is the year that i assigned you and you mentioned it on the patreon audio but uh for those who didn't hear that this is one of your years, your reusable calendars. Yes, it's the sister years, as my wife calls it. So the basic idea, I've explained this before, but if you're tuning in for the first time, which is always a possibility, I got obsessed with this idea that how you can reuse calendars. I mean, if you hopefully you're familiar with that concept, calendars basically repeat themselves so that the day and the date of every month line up exactly the same on that calendar. So there are years that you can use old calendars from and people do this. We actually have a couple of like um, linen, like fabric calendars. Like it's a thing I do now because because of this system, I also now buy these calendars occasionally (laughs) as I give them to my wife for Christmas. And it's that's our calendar for the year and it hangs up. So currently I'm looking. So basically I, I, I created this system so that I could really deep dive on years and challenge myself to find music. And I typically kind of go month by month and say what came out in this month and this year. And that kind of unlocks records that I can then listen to. And, you know, I just challenge myself to listen to stuff that I'm I'm not familiar with records that are maybe off the beaten path within an artist with a long discography. And maybe it's a less popular record, but maybe it's not a bad record. And, 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 you know, I'll listen to stuff I'm familiar with. So currently I'm looking at 61, 67, 78, 89, 95, 2006, and 2017. Uh, so 2006, I was 16 years old. It's a year I'm pretty familiar with. Uh, the music that came out that year, but I haven't, I haven't been reaching to that year very much. I have a, typically have a hard time with the 2006 or the 2000s onward because I was more familiar with a lot of the stuff that came out in those years. So it's not as 
it doesn't scratch the discovery itch as much as earlier decades. And so I, I came upon the year 2006 to assign you specifically because uh, I try and do a different decade every week. That way we're not like talking about the seventies or eighties, two weeks in a row or three weeks in a row. So I try and like cycle through a different decade that we haven't covered previously. So this was, it was time to do an album from the two thousands and 2006. The last time we covered it was May 11th, 2022. And that was a actually a Patreon sponsored episode. That was episode number 182, where we talked about None More Blacks. This is satire. That was a really fun episode. I really like doing that one. I think Tim nominated that for us back back in the day. Well, that's almost not even it's a little over a year ago. So uh, and then before that, we did uh, episode 139. We did Hawthorne Heights. If only you were lonely. We did that with Thomas from Arms Like Roses, who I think they're on tour right now. So. Go check them out. And then episode 119, we covered Angels and Airwaves and their album, We Don't Need to Whisper. We did that with Molly from the Generation GC podcast. By the way, still going strong, Generation GC. I feel like Molly has to be nearing the discography of <laughs> Good Charlotte, though. Like, because she's, do- it's a, if you don't know that show, that is a weekly song at a time podcast where she's going through the entire Good Charlotte discography one song at a time. And I feel like she's got to be getting close to finish with that. So, but awesome. I'm so happy that she has like a lot of people lose steam and stop doing shows, but she is dug in on that show and it's really awesome. And then way back in episode number two, where we <laughs> didn't know what we were doing. We did run kid runs. This is who we are. And cause this was our old album and a DP format. We did for the mathematics and their EP, We Impend, back when the show was truly randomly selected stuff. <laughs> Man, we got some weird stuff. <laughs> Especially on the EPs. I think EPs, we allowed ourselves to go with, like, I've literally never heard of that before. <laughs> yeah. But yeah. So yeah, 2006. Funnily enough, we've hit emo a lot. Yeah, you were listing the records that we talked about, and I'm like, oh, so we've almost exclusively talked about emo pop punk. <laughs> stuff from 2006 like yeah and then what do i choose an emo pop punk record um (laughs) i mean it's the time for it right i mean it's that's the peak uh you know i was there for it that was the peak i mean yeah (laughs) that stuff was massive at the time and i don't think anything ever has really emo wise has come close to popularity and mainstream kind of like saturation yeah as around this era you have your Fallout Boys and your My Chemical Romance and Panic at the Disco and Yellow Card and the album we're talking about today. It's just like huge, huge artists. They were selling tons of records and getting radio play and all that kind of stuff. It was it was right on the cusp of which is for. The, so this is an interesting thing to think about. We think of it as being huge. There was a lot of there were a lot of bands that were really big and it was a really big youth culture movement. But it's interesting to think that it still was not quite to the level of arena rock. It was almost there. It was almost over the edge to like full on arena rock. But I don't think anybody from 2006 to 2008 crossed over to the point of being like Nirvana big. You know, grunge big. Did did new metal get close? I don't think I've been listening uh, over the last couple months 
extensively. Uh, actually, I literally listened to every single episode this week, or uh, the last, the most recent episode this week of the podcast, the POD cast, cast with a K. Um, and they talked about, they've talked about numerous times on there that I, I don't think any of the new new metal bands were ever able to be like arena bands. They couldn't like sell out an arena by themselves. They could do like those package tours. Yeah. Like Family Values could do it. And like a lot of new metal bands are on like Summer Sanitarium and stuff like that. So Ozfest. Yeah. Ozfest. You could you could get to festival grounds level, but you had to have a lot of bands on it. Yeah. So none of them could like really do it arena on their own. Instead and, and that was Biscuit? No, I don't think so. Big. Kid Rock? And they were they might get like yeah. <sighs> I guess the is there's there's a distinction I guess between arena and coliseum cuz coliseum can be indoors and arena is typically exclusively outdoors. Yeah, I, don't know. I guess we're sell out an arena. I'm trying to think of seat seat numbers. What's the what's the distinction? Yeah. I mean, I think it's going to be pretty hard for like to do an arena tour. Like you could do like one and maybe sell it out, but to do a tour and really pack it out, I think that's the distinction. Yeah. And yeah. So like I guess emo emo might have been the next wave that maybe could have got there. Were the yeah. Killers Arena Rock level? They were oh, close. And they were they were they were big. Um let me see. Uh what Killers record did was there a Killers record in 2006? There was actually. It's on the first page here of uh, your rate your music chart punk charts. We have <laughs> the Killers. It uh, is so Sam's it's Sam's Town. Um, let me see the killers 2006 tour dates. See what comes up. Well, the hot fuss tour was 2003 to 2005, 300 shows in a two year period. I'm trying to find venues by the end of that tour. Where are the killers playing casino theater convention center, a hard rock and amphitheater Key Arena in Seattle and Pacific Coliseum in Vancouver, Canada. So on that line of Arena Coliseum, Close. big amphitheater. Yeah. Big amphitheater, maybe, mainly. More consistently big theater, big amphitheater. Yeah. Emo didn't quite quite get there, I don't yeah. think. I mean, if we're going to keep it emo, this is the year of the Black Parade. When I was a young boy, my father took me into the city. To see a marching band. Which was huge. Sold so many copies. It was played on radio stations and videos were played on MTV2, I guess, would have been the video <laughs> network they had then. And Fuse. There's a very uh, uh, prominent canceled band who <laughs> released a record that year. Don't worry, they're trying to come back. It's fine. Uh, <laughs> Ooh, we have AFI's December Underground was released that year, which is the sellout quote quote album. So I guess people were kind of mad at the one before too. Yeah, I listened to. A, about half of December Underground uh, this week, and I don't really like it. 
Yeah, uh, even for them and what they would later change their sound to, it's not it's not great. The albums on either side of it, I think, are better. Yeah. Than that one. I mean, there's smaller stuff, obviously. You know, your your under oaths and your Alexis on fires and your taking back Sundays like they're there. But yeah, the peak, the, the, the top names of the genre would be your my chemical romances at this point. Fallout Boy. But what else came up from 2006 that uh, has piqued your interest? I'm not going to lie. This first page kind of sucks. <laughs> <laughs> so I was looking. I sent you so many records that I was like, yeah, Man, I could do that. I could do that. I could do that. I could do that. And a lot of it was like, if I really looked closer at it, it was it was pretty easy to kind of eliminate some stuff. But I'm trying to remember what I sent you and what I was closest to picking. And there was a lot of there was a lot of stuff I felt like eh, maybe there's not a ton to say, like the screamo stuff can be, you know, not the most extensive conversation. And a lot of it has to do with there's not much documentation to find when researching it, which is it's frustrating not to get in tap into any <laughs> current uh, Twitter discourse, but there's not there's no stories to tell. There's no narrative. There's no context. <laughs> Unless you were there for it. it, it's really hard to find that stuff. I was really intrigued by like kind of the metalcore stuff. So like, there's a dead to me or not dead to me, dead to fall record. There is a dead to me record. Yeah, there is a very but, awesome uh, dead to me record. There's a dead to fall record that I I almost considered because we talked about them on a bracket recently. Yeah, and it was like we were both like mm, not that record, but maybe the next one, and that next one is the Phoenix Throne. which is the 2006 record, which I had at the time. Loved it. I was kind of interested in the um, the Bleeding Through record that came out that year. <laughs> Maybe I'll be better on my own. What does everything um, And I actually listened to a little bit of that record. Maybe like the first four songs. It's so dumb. <laughs> <laughs> Some of the most laughably bad lyrics you've ever heard it's it's hilarious just treat yourself a couple songs <laughs> the most melodramatic lyrics with some bad clean singing and just breakdowns <laughs> Go, getting uh i mean getting outside of what we're talking about a little bit uh more true punks if you will latterman put out we are still alive So I was close on that one. That was one I really almost considered. I was I was encouraging you on that one. That one I was encouraging mainly based on the the type of music that our a lot of our listeners really like. I I think they would really dig that record. I don't know if that's the album I would choose maybe from Latterman. That's the that's what I was like uh, probably the main reason why I didn't pick it because I was like all of the Latterman records are really good. But maybe not that one. If it were no matter where we go, it would probably be that one. Yeah, for sure. Though this one would have been interesting because it was the last one, wasn't it? Yeah, because it's the last one where they broke up and they're like, you guys didn't get it. 
these songs aren't about community. That was always the complaint. Everybody was like, these seem like songs about community. And they were like, these are these are songs about sexism. Yeah. <laughs> um, I was I was pretty close on that one. That we we mentioned it. That Dead to Me record is Cuban Ballerina. Which is like the best Dead to Me record. Fucking love that record. I think we could have done a pretty good job diving in that album. Did we talk about that on our hundred and one hundred? I want to say probably did. Well, we most certainly did. And we've talked about Dead to Me throughout the show a lot. We haven't dedicated a whole episode to them, but I I was kind of thinking along the lines of what we've kind of been doing recently and being like trying to cover a band that we have really maybe not talked about extensively. So really also thinking along the lines of like, what was big mm-hmm. uh, that we haven't really talked about? And I was also kind of interested in talking about something that I that I wanted to revisit and maybe reevaluate. So kind of similar to some stuff we've done recently, like that Alkaline Trio record that we did, mm-hmm. the Agony and Irony one. And I feel like we've done some other stuff recently where it's like, I remember that, but uh, maybe there's something else to it that we can, maybe there's something I'm misremembering about it. Is it good? Is it bad? Is it better than I remember? Worse than I remember? So I think that, and then you kind of were like, that one should do well because it is a big name. So I think that's why I ended up with the record that we did to answer the question that you haven't asked yet. But <laughs> well, let's get into it then. So I gave you the year 2006 and you selected Dusk and Summer by Dashboard Confessional. On the band formed in 1999 in Boca Raton, Florida. Very funny place <laughs> to be from. <laughs> I don't think I knew that before. <laughs> Released June 27th, 2006 on Vagrant Records. This is the band's fourth full length album and was a follow up to their record, A Mark, A Mission, A Brand, A Scar. And the personnel on this album is Scott Schoenbeck on bass, Mike Marsh on drums, John Leffler on guitar and keys. Chris Caraba on guitar, vocals and keys, and Susan Sharus on violin. The album was produced by Don Gilmore. 
and there's more to that production. Uh, this record has a long actual story about the making of, and we'll get into it. But those are the main elements. I did want to mention that Scott Schoenbeck was in The Promise Ring. That was his big band prior to Dashboard. And I believe he's actually still in the band today. I think he's still one of the like the only members still active that's not Chris. And then Mike Marsh later, he is like the current drummer for the Avid Brothers, which I found very yeah. interesting. <laughs> and then the album also features some guest vocals by Adam Duritz of the Counting Crows on So Long, So Long. But yeah, let's do, I guess, the, let's do, what's your history with the Dashboard Confessional? So I think my history with the Dashboard Confessional is most people's my age history with Dashboard Confessional. It starts with vindicated being in the spider-man 2 soundtrack (laughs) (laughs) it's the theme of spider-man 2 it is the end credits song And it it being a radio song, it was a radio hit. And I remember hearing it on the radio. And I think I think it's an interesting song to think about for me personally. It's one of the last few new songs being big hits on alt rock radio that I remember from being a teenager, because I think it came out right at the point where I stopped listening to the radio consistently. Yeah, that's that's possible because there would there would be like times where it maybe would be on in the car or something that we would listen to. But like as far as like a smash hit song that I liked, probably. Yeah, probably not much else. Because right right around this time, I feel like we made our our full teenage dive into being punks, quote unquote, or (laughs) hardcore kids or metalheads or whatever we were. Otherwise, just being alternative to the alternative, being someone who listens exclusively to their CDs and does not really listen to the radio, doesn't like most of the stuff that's on the radio, could not tell you anything about what pop music was uh, other than what I would just occasionally see on MTV2 or something like that. Or, you know, a huge pop song that you might hear inescapably in public places out Um, of pure curiosity i kind of want to pull up and see what <laughs> the, what, what the, was on the billboard charts yeah like at least for, at least the rock charts because you and i weren't listening to pop music at all yeah at that time so i'm kind of really curious to see what would be on the charts in 2006 uh when did when did vindicated chart I'm um, assuming I, it charted Had i think you. it was it did it charted um i want to say it was like june or something like that i think it was released in june it was released in June of 2004. Oh, right. It goes oh, back so further. Hmm. Well, okay. I, I pulled up 2006, so I'm just still just going to go look at a 2006 uh, some, chart. While you pull that up, I will say, just to dig into the chart performance of Vindicated, uh, peaked at number two on mm-hmm. the Alternative Songs chart was, was kept out of the number one spot by Three Days Grace, just like you. I don't remember that song. Mm-mm. I mean, but I bet if I heard it, I'd be like, oh, yeah, that song. Because that <laughs> Three Days Grace were one of those bands that, that made me not like listening to the radio anymore. Like, 
Nickelback was massive. And then it was like Shinedown and Seether and like all these, we called them butt rock bands at the time. I know other people call like Motley Crue butt rock. <laughs> I think it depends on your age, <laughs> what you consider butt rock. Butt rock is whatever is on the nothing but rock radio station <laughs> at any given time. Butt rock now is Imagine Dragons. <laughs> it's true. It's true. God, I'm like in the chart section. Later later issues of the Billboard magazine just put all the charts together in the same part of the magazine. But I'm having a hard time actually finding. There we go. Modern rock chart. By the time this album was out or roughly coming out, number one song was Danny California by the Red Hot Chili Peppers. Mm. And then we had Hate Me by Blue October, Tools Vicarious, The Raconteurs, Steady As She Goes, mm-hmm. Angels and Airwaves, The Adventure, Miss Murder by AFI, Arctic Monkeys, I Bet You Look Good on the Dance Floor, Shine Down, I Dare You, Pearl Jam, Worldwide Suicide, don't know that one, and Three Days Grace, Animal I Have Become. And then, just out of curiosity, I'm not going to go much past the, t- the top ten, Gold Lions on here by AAS. Hawthorne Heights made it. Was saying sorry. Crazy bitch by Buck Cherries on here. <laughs> that seems so late. It does. I feel like they were earlier than that. Corns on here with Coming Undone. I remember that. Thirty seconds to Mars. The Kill. So we're in this weird time period where like the new metal is being phased out. By 06, new metal was like dead in a joke. But Corn was still big enough that they could still chart. Do you remember? me pissing off our aunt by making fun of corn when that song came on in the car and she's like corn's my favorite band (laughs) no i don't remember that at all (laughs) that song yeah it was that song i remember seeing them play that on snl the time and he had his weird mic stand (laughs) his geiger mic stand so most of the stuff that you name from that chart i remember but not from the radio because our radio was not playing yeah, yeah, yes. Mars or yeah, yeah, yes. <laughs> I remember that stuff from music videos. I remember that from watching Fuse and, and MTV too. Yeah. And it, I mean, that's such a, I mean, you know, it's really not a huge difference, but <clears throat> between the radio and, and music video play. But to me, it's, it's different because there was a way that I felt like we watched music videos just as much for the stuff we didn't like. <laughs> as it was the stuff we did like yeah and maybe we wouldn't have said it that way maybe we wouldn't have even admitted it that we had like a we wanted to laugh at it we got entertainment out of watching music videos for stuff that we wanted to make fun of and which is i think a normal teenager thing to do i mean beavis that's the premise of beavis and butthead <laughs> yeah <laughs> so we were just living that out but the i I guess to me, I think of the difference as being I listen to the radio specifically to listen to music that I wanted to listen to. And around the time that Vindicated got popular was around the time that I stopped listening to the radio because I wasn't hearing music that I was interested in hearing. Because a music video has a visual component to it that you can engage with. And you might even like the visual aspects of a music video, but not like the song in the video. Mm hmm. It's 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 more three dimensional than just listening to a record or listening to a song on the radio. But progressing past that into you know introduction to dashboard confessional, I think you know coming across the term emo is coincidental with being becoming aware of dashboard confessional, um, getting to know that as a genre of music and deciding that it was a genre of music I didn't like as an edgy little teenager. <laughs> 
and then coming around to it by the end of my teens, we our our friend we had a friend who listened to Dashboard Confessional pretty often, right? Did we? Did Corey listen to Dashboard? Um, were they in, in his rotation with uh, God damn it and the Weaker Thans? You know what? Now that I think about it, he may have been into the first couple. Yeah, the first couple. I feel like because he was he was more open to like that kind of emo than we were. Yeah. Um. So I could see because that was Warp Tour era stuff, and he was going to Warp Tour. So yeah, I could see him maybe being into the first like handful of the the first two or three at least. I want to say I heard some of that stuff in his car. Yeah. Occasionally. And really through very little effort, I think I absorbed a lot of information about Dash Dashboard. Hearing different songs, hearing different eras of Dashboard's career, finding out. I'm not sure at what point I found out he was the Further Seems Forever guy. So I guess that probably comes into my late teens where we would have become aware of further seems forever and being like oh the dude from dashboard confessional started this band and then left uh in before the first record even came out so that little bit of story narrative gets picked up in context for him um but i don't think it was until sometime in college that i like actually listened to any dashboard confessional records i want to say i probably copied the first three albums from somebody's itunes around that time and then i was familiar with like the singles from this record and i really and i remember enjoying the places you have come to fear and a mark emission in particular i thought those were pretty good records but they they weren't anything i listened to a lot it was just like yeah, i listened to this once or twice but i had a running joke with a guy i knew in college where i don't know why we started doing this. Oh, no, I do know why we started doing this. So in college, I worked in the cafeteria uh, and I kept working there after I graduated college for like another year. And in that like that transition from like graduating to then still working there, there was a guy who worked in the dish room who was a little bit older. Uh, he didn't go to that college. He had been to college somewhere else. I think he was like had been a graduate student somewhere and then maybe flunked out. Um, total sad sack dude. Um, and he would listen to Dashboard Confessional and like Further Seems Forever and lots of other emo stuff in that vein. A lot of the times while he's doing dishes, which if you've ever been a dishwasher is a weird choice. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I would not want to be listening to sad sack emo music while I'm doing dish room. Classic rock. That's the thing that's going to keep you alive. Metal, even if you're if you can get away with it. Hell, even country. I think you can get away with. But no, that's yeah. not. You not, need energetic no. music. You need upbeat. You need to move. You need to be happy. You need to li- listen to something that's going to make you happy. Yeah. Uh, he did not. He was not a very good dishwasher. <laughs> but so I would be occasionally sitting on the desk at the desk, scanning meal plan cards as students would come into the cafeteria. And I would just be sitting there just like dead eyed. Is the most boring job task you you could have. You had to stay at the desk because otherwise they would sneak in and not scan their cards because they thought that they were going to get the food for free, even though they already paid for the meal plan. Well, no, what they wanted to do was go to the grill and use their meal swipe there to get more food. But and so you, I would just be sitting there like dying from this boring shift, 
and it's just the most and I didn't even dislike the music, but it's just like such an energy drain to he- be hearing dashboard confessional emanating from a, you know, at low volume from the dish room. <laughs> and and one of the students who I knew when I was a student, he was still a student after I had graduated. He would come up to me and he was like, we both latched onto the fact that you're hearing dashboard confessional as you walk in. So we would just start quoting dashboard lyrics to each other. <laughs> like we'd see each other and we would, he would like say a line from a dashboard song and we would see each other and like text each other dashboard confessional lyrics. It's just, and it, this was not even a guy that I was like friends with. It was just a total acquaintance. One of those people that you know, and you occasionally are around when you're hanging out with other people who you have common friends, but you never hung out with on your own. But we had this whole running joke for like a year <laughs> uh, revolving around dashboard. And then from there, I think that's it. I think that's I, I fall off with dashboard. I don't think I listened to the the reunion further seems for forever record uh, that wasn't very good. And then I've never heard any other dashboard records past dusk and summer. So uh, my background with them is not nearly as extensive as yours. Mine literally consists of I heard Vindicated on the radio because it was on the Spider-Man 2 soundtrack. And by the way, back to back Spider-Man soundtracks with massive hits on them. The first one had the uh, Nickelback featuring Josie Scott from Saliva, the hero song, meme song. um, But maybe the best Nickelback song ever. Or was it actually credited as a Chad Kroger song? It might have been just a Chad song. Chad with Josie Scott. Anyway. Um, that was the first soundtrack. I think there was maybe even something else on that soundtrack, too, that was big, but it is credited as just Chad Kroger. OK, uh, first first Spider-Man soundtrack. There's uh, what we're all about by some 41 featuring Carrie King from Slayer. <laughs> <laughs> There's a Corey Taylor song on there. There's a stroke song on there. Hate to say I told you so by the hives is on there. Mm, maybe the Macy Gray song is one of the most standout songs because it's in the she's in the movie. Yeah, which is very funny to think about <laughs> now. Yeah, maybe this wasn't. Maybe I'm just conflating the two soundtracks together. And because in my brain, I, for some reason, I had thought they were on the same soundtrack and they're not. They're the first and the second one. So, yeah, Vindicated comes out. We were when those movies were out, we were into them. We were combo kids um, and. This was the first time that like actual good superhero movies were coming out. The first two X-Men, the first two Spider-Man, like they were good movies for the time, especially. I know they've been memed to death since then because of of the our director, Mr. Sam Raimi's particular style (laughs) (laughs) is very comic, very comedic. He has a comedic directing style. Because if you watch the Evil Dead, the original Evil, all three of the original Evil, the first one's more serious, but like there's still humor in it. But like Evil Dead 2 and Army of Darkness are just like half comedies, half horror movies. And so like his visual style is funny. And I think they're also going for like a cartoony comic book feel to it. So it does kind of have a little bit of the Joel Schumacher cartoonishness to the way they look. But yeah, Vindicated comes out and I'm like, this song's awesome. And it. It feels kind of fresh for the radio. Like that kind of music wasn't really hitting on the radio because we were in the dirth of the post new metal uh, butt rock 
post grunge Nickelback. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And there was stuff like some 41, a good Charlotte and blink One Eight Two, but it, it didn't quite sound like this. This vindicated felt very different. And blink went blink. Blink on the more serious, sensitive songs being the closest thing. Yeah. Yeah. But I also then never proceeded to listen to anything Dashboard Confessional ever. You've listened to albums prior to this one. I've never listened to a single Dashboard record. I'd listened to the Furthest Dreams Forever album, The Moon Is Down, which Chris is on, which I love that story because it was like they were it was Chris Caraba. He was friends with the band strong arm strong arm breaks up and they want to start a new band uh because they don't have their vocalist anymore and so they start this band with chris because they were in they were working on that stuff for a while and chris decides to leave the band because he had already released the first dashboard album and because dashboard was actually originally started as a side project and then he found out he really liked doing it and so he left further seems forever but they were already signed to tooth and nail i'm guessing it was a key member clause situation because they had nothing out but i know that billy power who uh formerly a blender head but he was also i think he was an a and r guy for tooth and nail at the time he begged he i he begged chris to come back and at least record the record he's like just just it's too good you have i guess he'd heard the demos or something He's like, you yeah. have you have to record this album. Please put this album out. And I think he even tried to sign Dashboard, but I don't I think Chris was he was like, I don't want to be on Tooth and Nail. <laughs> <laughs> um so like he begged them, he he agreed to do it. He went and recorded the record with them and then left the band. And then then the album comes out. Turns out to be like a masterpiece too of emo. I don't know which albums are more well regarded now. If that further seems forever record or the first couple of dashboard albums are more well regarded, I think culturally at the time, the dashboard stuff was a bigger deal. But I think over time, the cult status of that, the moon is down might might make it a little bit more critically praised than the dashboard stuff, because the first two dashboards were like all acoustic, all acoustic albums. So I think that further seems forever probably has fewer number of people who have heard it and more people who have heard it really like it Mm -hmm. i think that dashboard confessional being such a popular successful band has attracted enough people who will go listen to it who don't like it any of the records any period of dashboard confessional
which kind of brings to brings me to my point that like not you know I have this like long distant kind of like history with Dashboard Confessional brings me to maybe the main reason that I wanted to talk about this record in particular. Dashboard Confessional is wildly overhated. Over overhated. Hated. Yeah. Yeah. You know, I I think there was this. It's weird. So okay, Dashboard were huge. Like they were. They're on Spider Man soundtrack. Yeah. You know, like that is huge. They're Chad Kroger big. <laughs> And I feel like they've been forgotten in the main consciousness of emo because My Chemical Romance, Panic at the Disco, Fall Out Boy, they achieved higher levels of stardom. And because Dashboard was so stripped down in the beginning and even listening to this record, like it's not it's a lower energy group. That I think people were just like, oh, yeah, Dashboard. Like, they just kind of, like, forgot about Dashboard. Yeah. So, Dashboard kind of, back to the palm tree girls and palm tree boys joke. <laughs> Dashboard are Paxon emo. Oh, that's true. Paxon the emo. Most, the most accessible brand of kind of harmless pop rock emo. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Very in line with your yellow cards, your Jack's, Jack's mannequin, mannequin. <laughs> which, by the way, Jack's mannequin 100 percent just was doing dashboard. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It was like piano dashboard and then dashboard does pianos. Yeah. So, <laughs> yeah. The very soft emo, <laughs> like the gentlest of emos, because there was an angst with chemical romance and fallout boy and is yeah there's theatrics there's mm-hmm. there's makeup you yeah. know chris caraba is a is a pompadour guy <laughs> uh he's a scarf and a peacoat guy <laughs> i watched one of the videos and he is wearing a peacoat and a scarf <laughs> i think it's the stolen video but, yeah. God, that, uh, i meant to look up the dashboard confessional uh henry rollins show appearances <laughs> yes. from from this time period Recordings of which are included on the deluxe edition of yes. this album. Might be the biggest uh, cultural impact that the Henry Rollins show has is just being bonus tracks. His dashboard's <laughs> performance of the bonus tracks of the one year anniversary extended edition Dusk and <laughs> Summer. Because nothing else from that show has, has remotely been like culturally relevant ever. Uh, loved that show. I have it. I'm literally staring at my copy of the DVD of season one that I own. I should have pulled it out and watched the Caraba performance because I do remember he's wearing these sunglasses in it that he he's not wearing in anything else I've ever seen him do. <laughs> he's wearing the hide tinted glasses. <laughs> and his hair um, is slicked back, too. This <laughs> is just pushed back. <laughs> yeah. Um, he's wearing t-shirt there's three acoustic guitars and a violin the rollins show um performance area is just like a brick wall it's like a and like there's a big some rugs some like big persian rugs on the floor didn't they record this at the blasting room or isn't that what that was maybe probably like all the, the live, live performances were at the blasting, blasting room. room what shirt is he wearing my brain wants to think of it as like a an afflicted shirt 
Affliction shirt. Like, is there print on that shirt? It's got a print on it. It could be just like a black ink Hurley screen print shirt. It's like, that's kind of what I'm imagining, too. It says Tyburn. Huh. Don't know that one. I don't know. Could be just like some generic brand. Caraba seems like the kind of guy who buys a, a graphic tee for an obscure brand. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So I yeah, like you're saying under over hated. I do think there was a little bit of that. Just like, eh, look at this guy and his feelings. <laughs> like, <laughs> Look at this hot, sensitive guy who's very talented. We hate him. <laughs> Because he is a good-looking guy. Like, I watched those videos, and I was like, this dude was a smoke show. What were they? Like, I feel like we didn't see him nearly enough. (laughs) He's self-conscious about how attractive he is. (laughs) Yeah, he's he's very conventionally attractive. Full sleeves, very stylish Mm -hmm. for the time period. Front man material, obviously. Like, Like, almost too much so. Almost like... You would cast him to be the front man in a, <laughs> in a, a TV movie. show or a movie, yeah. a CW show yeah. on, uh, with a band that features in it. Yeah. Or a WB show back then. And it's very funny to me to think about, too. He was in Further Seems Forever. Have you ever seen the rest of Further Seems Forever? <laughs> I've seen Strong Arm. <laughs> so this is not body shaming in any way. Um, but Further Further Seas Forever consisted of all of the band Strongarm plus a singer, Chris Crabb at the time. Further Seas Strongarm were hefty dudes. They were big guys. Um, I'm amongst them. Their crowd, their their body types. So I'm not <laughs> I'm not body shaming anyway. But it's just very funny to me that like every dude in that band was big, except for Caraba. And it's just like a very funny like. I mean, they look like hardcore guys. They look like. Half of the hardcore bands from that time period all look like that now. Like Indecision looks like that now, too. You know, like (laughs) they all got big. Who cares? But yeah, they look like hardcore guys. Like, yeah, they're not. They don't look like actors. No. And Chris Caraba looks like an actor. And we know I think we know, too, now that for like uh, those guys must have been kind of tough to be around because they must have been a tough band to be in as a vocalist because they had two vocalists in strong arm and three vocalists in further seems forever. <laughs> so it's just like, are you guys just too demanding, but you're all in sync with your demandingness that your singers just are like, I can't do this. <laughs> <laughs> but, uh, yeah. So, okay. So, so, okay. To my point of overhated, we've been joking this whole time about <laughs> Chris Caraba. He's goofy. He's laughable. Like you can laugh at him. There, there are things about him that are just funny he's isn't he the guy whose thing was like eyeball fucking was that him (laughs) like you go see dashboard live and he picks people in the crowds and just like fucks you with his eyes (laughs) like that's the (laughs) he's got that kind of stage presence (laughs) yeah it all of all of these things it's like you want to laugh at it but like you listen to it you listen to vindicated it is it is radio rock, mm-hmm. but it's so damn catchy. Like it is instantaneously memorable. The first time you hear that, you know it mm-hmm. from beginning to end. It is well structured for rock radio. It's got dynamics. And then but here's the thing. And this is the thing that I think that makes it a good song is or a great song 
you know, despite what you could call it, you could the ways that you could call it formulaic, the character in that song is realistic, is conflicted, is self-aware. I am vindicated. I am wrong. I am right. I swear I'm right. Like, it's someone who is actively changing their mind in the chorus of a song, of realizing that they maybe were right about this relationship, but they were shitty about how they were right. The song is also about Spider-Man. Yeah. <laughs> Which is shocking. He got the what the script for this or did he see the movie and write the song? <laughs> so it was supposed to be a different song in the movie. He saw a screening of the movie and then said, actually, let's not do this song. Here's a song I wrote in 10 minutes. Use yeah. this one instead. He wrote it in 10 minutes after seeing a screening of Spider-Man 2 and said, use this instead of that other song. That other song, he said they said he played it live. I don't think it shows up on a record anywhere. It's like yeah. a lost song. Yeah. He wrote a song in 10 minutes moved by the themes of Spider-Man 2. <laughs> that is pretty thoughtful. It's like I said earlier, Spider-Man has got very memeified. The third movie made it so that you could very easily make fun of all three of them because there's things that are just like absolutely cheesy about those Sam Raimi Spider-Man movies. Um, but for the longest time, Spider-Man 2 was considered like the best comic book movie ever made. Like it was critically acclaimed. Comic fans loved it. So there, there is like an emotional depth to that movie. Which I've always I've thought every incarnation of Spider-Man has an emotional depth to it just because like Spider-Man as a character is rooted in tragedy and attempting to make things better. is basically the, the story of Spider-Man. But yeah, we've talked a lot about Vindicated and it's technically not really on this album. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So Vindicated is the negative space bonus track. They call it pre-gap hidden track. Which, if you had a CD player that could do this, because not all CD players could do this, when you put the CD in and press play and you immediately hit backtrack or like hold the backtracking button or rewind or whatever it says on your, your radio or stereo, you have to track backwards into negative space to get to two songs. There are two songs in the negative space. One of them. Did you listen to that one? I couldn't. I, it's not on Spotify, and I, I didn't have a second to. to it's on find YouTube. It. It's called "Write It Out." It's a four-minute song. Yeah. Entirely acoustic song, very much in the vein of the previous, the first two albums, and it rules. Like it's really fucking good. I don't know. It has like a rough, uh, demo-y quality to it. Um, it's a really good acoustic song. And I was like, "What the fuck? Why did you bury this in negative space?" And not put it on the bonus versions later. That was the weird part to me. I don't know if that song was older. I didn't look up that song specifically. But yeah, that's there. And then Vindicated is there. It's got a piano in it. Yeah, I can hear it. Yeah. Um, fun, fun fact about Vindicated. It was recorded with Don Gilmore, who produced this record. And Gil Norton, who produced last week's Bossa Nova. I thought that was very funny. Yeah. So it's a pre-gap hidden song, and then um, if you go to Spotify, it's the 11th track on the album, Vindicated. They don't put Write It Out on there. And then if you go, if you listen to the 2007 Deluxe Reissue, they include Vindicated as like track four. They just kind of like slot it in the middle of the record. And also, interestingly, like an alternate, oh, oh uh, the radio edit version of Stolen, I think is the one. Mm. 
It's yeah. softer. It's softer. It's the music video version. And two, like the the album version has like kind of reverby, kind of layered vocals, but the single version is like upfront, clean. Like you could hear every word he's saying. I can see why they would be like, we got to put that version on the the deluxe edition just because it's it gets the lyrics across a little better than the kind of buried version on the album. But yeah. talked about vindicated forever and like it's a hidden bonus track is really what it is and it came out 2004 which is like man, that's a long time before the record came out well you had it on, on the spider-man 2 soundtrack of course you need it <laughs> um okay dusk and summer we've gone an hour and we're not even talking about it we haven't even talked about any of the songs and the story <sighs> yeah let let's let's hit the story because I feel okay. like that's that's the meat of it. So following the third album, A Mark, A Mission, A Brand, A Scar, Dashboard had solidified into an actual full band. I think most of the people on that record are on this one, too. I think it's roughly the same people. So they, Dashboard's now a full band. They have gone from an acoustic band to a full band. Chris had an entire album's worth of material that he had written and then scrapped entirely for being too safe. And he then demoed 30 new songs. <laughs> Part of it, he dug through some like older further seems forever material. And he had some other project that, that he had done before too. And like dug through some of that stuff. I, I'm assuming it's just like stuff that he demoed and never like really did with them. And so he was, he reworked those songs somehow producer, Daniel Lenoir, I guess that's how you would say that name, uh, who had previously worked with Bob Dylan, Neil Young, Peter Gabriel, Emmylou Harris, and extensively with the band U2. Like, he did yeah. a bunch of their work. He did Joshua Tree. You know, big yeah. stuff. He he retired after producing their 2000 album, All That You Can't Leave Behind. He somehow gets copies, demos, for this record. And then he, like, contacts Chris, and he's like, come to Jamaica and talk with me. And so I'm sure he was just like, yeah, I'll go to Jamaica. That sounds sick as hell. Uh, so he goes to Jamaica. He's talking to this producer, and then he says... I want to produce this record. I'm coming out of retirement. I'm producing this thing. They recorded 20 songs. These sessions have a variety of instruments, including mandolins to metal flower pots. I'm assuming that was used as some kind of percussion. Then he does this thing. Oh, right. So like the record's done. All they have left to do is to mix it. Caraba goes on a solo college tour and then Dashboard goes on tour with U2. And then I guess the producer's like, cool. All that's left is the mixing. I'm done. I'm going to head out. He leaves the project. 
And then Chris was like, you know what? I want to record one more song. So he goes in and records another song. And he that's where Don Gilmore comes into the story. Then Chris Caraba writes six songs in four days. And then he wanted to rework the entire album that he recorded with Lenoir with Gilmore. He's like, let's do these over. And <laughs> what is left is now one song where Daniel Lenoir is credited as <laughs> the vocal producer. And <laughs> Gilmore is credited with the rest of the record as production. Uh, and one song where Daniel Lenoir is credited as the producer overall. Uh, oh, heaven, he got a full song. Heaven Here, track 10. End of, end of the record. So Daniel Lenoir, if you're, if you're not familiar, he's like an e, early on, he's an Eno collaborator. He worked with Ryan Eno on um, Ambient 4. He worked with him. He's, he's been on a couple of Eno records. Uh, they both worked on The Unforgettable Fire for U2. And then he does Joshua Tree. Kind of an experimental producer, like and in the 90s gets a little bit of a reputation for kind of like maybe like reinventing some older artists so he does wrecking ball with emmylou harris which is a huge deal for emmylou harris it's a it's a big record for her brings a lot of attention back to her career kind of creates a new template for her her style because she's from this point it's a little more original stuff and more like working with other songwriters and not necessarily her doing more standard country songs uh a different and it's a very different style of production for her it's not as country based uh he does time out of mind with bob dylan which is kind of an odd 90s bob dylan record pretty well regarded people really like that one uh he does teatro with willie nelson which has got all this like tex-mex and like it's a very kind of sparse not as unusual for willie nelson but a little outside um and later post dashboard uh coming bringing him out of retirement which i've never heard that before that's <laughs> that's wild dashboard is the band that brings daniel lanois out of retirement he does some more youtube stuff he does some stuff with brandon flowers and the killers he does Battleborn by the killers he does lenois uh lenois um with neil young which is the 2010 oh shit uh, um dead man soundtrack kind of reinventing yeah. that idea of like a drone country drone country rock drone record really cool record really cool yeah, sounding that record rules so it is immediately apparent to me like i'm which song is the daniel lenoir produced song heaven here is the one with all the weird ambient sound effects in it <laughs> <laughs> it's spacey and bizarre for what precedes this whole record which is like kind of it's very pop rock emo and then there's like some more like more ballady sensitive stuff, but all pretty conventional and safe sounding, which is funny that he scrapped like an album's worth of songs because they were too safe and then puts out one of the safest sounding albums we've probably ever covered on this show. Like the next safest thing is the Jack's Mannequin record. Yeah, you know, <laughs> it is. Yeah, it's definitely one of the least offensive records we've covered and as safe and inoffensive as it is. I think it's good. I think it's a good record. I think it's a solid 3.75 if we want to go ahead and give it a rating. It was enjoyable from beginning to end. It's a little bit weak on the last half for me, but not it didn't like totally lose my attention or anything. Yeah, so it definitely when the record came on, I was like, why have I not listened to Dashboard before? I don't know what it was 
that I was never, I was just like, I like that for the moon is down record. You know, I you'd think that I would have been like, listened to at least one of their other, one of the dashboard albums, but for some reason I'd never listened to anything they'd ever done before. And I liked vindicated too. So it was just another one of those things where I was like, what, why am I not listening to this? I don't know. Never top priority, I guess for me. Um, and no one in my life that was like, you should listen to that dashboard album. You know? So I put it on the first song is don't wait. It's pretty good. I mean, it's like a really strong song. I was like, this is good. It's got like a sixpence, none the richer, kiss me kind of feel to it. There's some oohs, o's, or whatever however they want to say ahs, really more. But there's a, it's not all acoustic. There's like electric guitar on this record, like most of this album. And then it's like, it's got some good texture and just good production all around. And I was like, that song's pretty good. And then Reason to Believe comes on, and I'm like, I really like this song. This song's great. And they continue with the secrets in the telling. And I'm like, this song is also great. And I'm just like, huh, have should I have been listening all along? Because this makes me think of the good stuff in for on the moon is down. So like, like I should have probably been listening to it. I do think the first it's a it's a front loaded re- record. I think that's the best materials in the front. Rooftops and Invitation is really good. Stolen is not my favorite song, but Stolen's fine it is a little cheesy yeah you have stolen my heart like but i was singing it before we started recording so i was yeah. just like it's got a hook you know it's, it's catchy it's i'm not gonna skip it i am going to skip so long so long because that song sucked <laughs> the, the counting crows guy song it's a piano song i just i did not like it i thought it was the worst song on the album actually no i take that back dusk and summer later became my least favorite song on the album it's, but I think that was like a straight acoustic song, like nothing else going on. It was okay. It, it was surprising that it's the title track to me. Yeah. I do think the back half is pretty weak. I think like Currents and Slow Decay are decent, but they didn't like grab me nearly as much. I think the first five tracks, though, are really strong and stand up with a lot of their his contemporaries. And Slow Decay's got a pretty good chorus. Slow Decay and... Slow Decay and Heaven Here for me on the back half of the record are the more interesting and engaging songs. So there's stuff there. But yeah, So Long, So Long, Currents, Dusk and Summer, they're not not thrilling. I think this is a record that has kind of the pacing, sequencing problem. You know, it does start strong enough and it has that succession of three good songs in a row. And if you backtrack into negative space, it's you have even more than that. Put them on the album. If you had put the CD the version of it, just put them on the album. Like, because with those two songs of, as actually part of the record, I would say it's a great record. Yeah, that might push of, it closer to a four. Yeah. Instead of just being a good record that I'm I'm currently I'm currently at a three point five on it. Yeah, I'm not as high on it as you are. But part of that comes from just being like, oh, that's that's what dashboard sounds like. I guess I just in my head knew the acoustic thing was what he did for so long that I thought that that's what it all it was. And a a good, a good bit of it towards like a mark emission and this, and this record, especially are particularly are like a more polished version of the moon is down. Yeah. I will say this record is like too polished. It's real glossy. I think, um, I'd be curious to hear. I don't know how many of those songs that he wrote, though, wound up 
like he recorded with Lenoir wound up being on this album because he then like wrote like six new songs too in like four days. Yeah, scraps an album worth of songs. Two weeks makes a bunch more demos of over thirty songs, <laughs> which means uh, he's a machine. <laughs> like he's a songwriting machine. Then yeah, another four weeks he's got a whole other album. <laughs> Dude's nuts. Just and I'm sure he is and. I'm sure, and this is what has made him successful, he's not sentimental about the songs that he writes. He is not precious about anything. I am sure he is tearing things apart. This is good. I'm saving this. I'll rework this. I'll bring this into that. Like, I am sure he's rewriting stuff over and over again because it can be better. And it's, and that's what you, like, that's what you do to be successful. You write three times as many songs as you need. And you rework stuff constantly like you cannot get emotionally attached to something that you wrote to something at the demo stage like you need to demo something and be willing to throw it away. (laughs) (laughs) And you pick only the best stuff and you put that on the record. And I think that's where maybe producers can be really important, especially when you're at his level to have someone to have that external voice to help you say what is the best stuff or what's going to make the best record. And I think that it seems like he probably made a record that was, he started making something that was too safe. And then he made something that was not safe at all and probably got weirded out and then wanted to go back to something more safe. Uh, And I think that's how you wound up with this record. And he scraps all the Lanois stuff. Who knows what that, that's, that's one of those lost, uh, that's a lost album yeah a, a proper lanois produced dashboard confessional that's an alternate universe record <laughs> speaking of alternate records he re-recorded this record <laughs> it's part of what is it all the truth right is that what it is all the truth that i can no 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 this was like a 2019 thing i gotta pull up the actual full discography the oh now is then is now yes now is then is now why are these not listed on it? Why is the album not on his Wikipedia page? <laughs> so he does original lyrics versions. 2019 Dashboard Confessional released re-recordings of Dusk and Summer, Alter the Ending, and A Mark and Mission of Brand Scar under a triple LP titled Now is Then is Now. So he reimagines three of his albums, three of his peak albums. And I and I kind of wonder, are these Taylor's, ver- Taylor's versions? <laughs> is this... I want to own these songs. Like <laughs> these are my um, songs. I want to own them. Well, Dusk and Summer was on Vagrant. Did Vagrant have a? Did they sell their discography? I don't think so. I think Vagrant's still like a label. Which now that I really think about it, they were on Vaves on Vagrant and Vindicated is like a big thing. How big did Vagrant get? Well, okay, I can answer this because I actually wrote down the albums that Vagrant released in <laughs> 2006. So the same year, Vagrant released. The Lemonhead self-titled album, The Hold Steady, Boys and Girls in America, Protest the Heroes, Kezia, Monine's The Red Tree, Alexis on Fire's Crisis, Senses Fails, Still Searching, The New Amsterdam's Story Like a Scar, and albums by The Future Heads and John Ralston, who was in Dashboard. I don't know. It's weird. It's weird that this because do they have like distro through somebody bigger? Does Vagrant have like really good distribution? I'm sure they had good distribution. I mean, it was it was that time period. You could buy you could buy almost anything in Best Buy. You know, almost everyone could get good distribution. Yeah. 
You almost had to make a point to not have good distribution. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. The, so, uh, the, go ahead. And then his next record, Shade of the Poison Tree, still on Vagrant. Yeah. Alter the Ending is listed as Vagrant DGC Interscope. So finally going bigger, but then he's on Epitaph. Yeah. Weird, right? I mean, maybe there's just a little bit of a DIY-ness to it, and Vagrant's not going to tell him what to do. There's a, there's a Fueled by Ramen record in 2018. Yeah, he didn't go really big, despite yeah. being on the Spider-Man 2 soundtrack. Despite being pretty big. And maybe that's why Dashboard is forgotten, but Chemical Romance and Fallout Boy are more remembered, because they did go more. They embraced the bigger labels. I don't know. That's interesting. I'm sure he was courted. Yeah. Had to have been. Maybe he just didn't like the deals. Chris Caraba with, uh, I don't know, maybe maybe more punk ethics than he gets credit for. Yeah. Yeah. I don't know. Any other big thoughts? Uh, I just had a few things about kind of like the post-release stuff. So there's a handful of videos. They did a video for Don't Wait. They did a video for Stolen. There's a Target edition of the CD that included a DVD. Do you remember that era where, like, because um downloading was such a big deal that labels were like well we got to give them a dvd or something like extra to not be as easily stolen which you could just steal those too um <laughs> but it featured three live performances and an interview i meant to watch that but and then in july the band went on tour with say anything and ben lee followed by a u.s tour into august Rooftops and Invitations was released as a single, too, on the radio. I don't know if they did a video for that one. They went on tour with Brand New in 2006. They toured with Brand New a couple times. They appeared on Late Night with Conan O'Brien. They appeared on The Tonight Show with Jay Leno. And the reception, that's that's one thing I wanted to get to. All Music gives it four stars. The AV Club gives it a C-. Entertainment Weekly gives it a B. The Guardian gave it two stars. IGN gave it a 6.4 out of 10. Music Alm gave it three stars. OK Player, I don't know some of these, why these are all credited, but uh, they gave it 77 out of 100. One of those sites. Pop Matters gave it a four out of 10. Rolling Stone gave it a three and a half out of five. And Stylus Magazine gave it a C plus. But it debuted at number two on the Billboard 200 charts, sold 134,000 copies in its first week. And then by August 2006, the album had sold over 300,000 copies. Was that make it gold? If you do like 100,000, you get gold or something like that. Re-released later uh, with Vindicated and then a reworked version of Stolen with a group called Julie. And then the deluxe edition that does the two Handy Rollins show performances of Ghost of a Good Thing and The Best Deceptions. And it was number one on the top rock albums chart. So sold well, did really well, not well liked. It's just got middling reviews, it seems like. The Metacritic gives it a 60. It's an aggregate score, so it's everything combined. But it has a, t- has a 2.77 on rate your music. Yeah, but that site's not going to like Dashboard. <laughs> yeah, very pretty much nothing other than the now is then is now stuff gets three point and higher. And the wire tapes, which is I don't think that's like a proper album. That's got a 3.01. But everything after the second album has under three some of i i want i think i saw a comment saying that like at the time dashboard fans didn't love it because it was just very safe i think and not acoustic enough yeah and i think that was a big deal because like dashboard made 
you know, he made his name writing acoustic songs and playing acoustic records. And it's about the lyrics with Caraba's stuff. And I don't know if the next, the third record was, I think the third record was pretty well liked. Um, Slightly more, but I think there's still a little bit of a, a backlash to that because it is a full band record. You can't go electric, um, but you can. But, you know, you lose some fans, but you gain more by going electric. So because it did well, it's like the second most listened to album on Last FM is the second most listened to album on Spotify. You know, it was a number two album in the Billboard 200. Sold lots of copies. Did really well. It's not critically beloved, but it got heard by a lot more people than those earlier records. So you can't get too mad at it. I mean, part of that is, I mean, he was just on Vagrant the entire time. So like it's him, it's all his hard work. That's really why he got to the level he did. And being on Spider-Man two soundtrack doesn't hurt either. And having Vindicated be like actually a really big song. So he's tried to drop the dashboard name a few times, right? A few times he's done stuff under his own name. And he did that twin forks album which was his country band <laughs> uh his stomp clap i don't know <laughs> I, I don't know what it sounds like yeah, he went and did another further scenes forever record but he yeah he's come back around it's dashboard confessional again they had a record last year yeah there's a period where dashboard like is broken up and i'm like how are you gonna break up with yourself dude because that's what it's him it's despite yes schoenberg being on like every record from the third record on it's not really a band. It is Chris Caraba, and he just hires people to play with him on the records. They might, I'm sure they contribute stuff, but and perform stuff, but it's his band. You know, it's him. I mean, he could just go by Chris Caraba, but I think people just like the name Dashboard Confessional. Like it's it it's a good name, and it comes from one of his songs on his first album. So yeah, I mean, it's it, it's the name recognition. People are gonna recognize that over his Chris Caraba. I guess you get stuck in a certain level, though, if you come across as a band versus if you're just like you never like ascend to that next level of a singer songwriter, I guess. Maybe that's why he tried it. He was like, I need to be like thought of like this, but and it didn't quite take. So maybe he's just like, OK, I, I, I'm dashboard confessional, but I don't know. I don't think he was ever going to be like viewed as one of the greatest songwriters of all time, though, because like. Lyrically, this album's fine. Yeah. Nothing really stood out to me as far as like super impressive. Yeah. I mean, it's it's hard to it's hard for me really to see what people hate about it, I guess. Um, Dudes being bros. I mean, like (laughs) maybe it's guys who hated it, It, you know, for the most part. I mean, you know, not to be like monolithic and all about, but like. Ooh, singing about his feelings Ugh, that's homophobia and <laughs> misogyny <laughs> you can't do that i listen to corn who are all about their feelings <laughs> it's just you feelings music for dudes you can't express your emotions except through anger <laughs> yeah maybe that's what it is yeah that's why you're allowed to be emotional in a hardcore band but not emotional in anything else but yeah that I can see the voice being a turnoff for some people. Yeah, sure. It's a I mean, very high like voice. Um, not for me. It works for me. Like I'm definitely fine with it. Um, it's strained. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Uh, yeah. He has a very powerful voice. Like he can sing very loud and clear and strong. 
but you can hear that little bit of like, <laughs> yeah, it's well, he, stretching to get up there, and that that can see that rubbing, and there's like no vibrato, like it is just like straight tone, like piercing high voice. Um, I can see that being a little bit. I can see that being grating if you don't like it, but I just don't think that that many people really truly hate that that kind of voice. I don't think that because. 70% of like pop punk bands have that voice. You know? Yeah. And typically I don't like that voice, but it doesn't have a put on feeling to it though. Whereas some of that like pop punk with the real high voices feels put on to me or an affectation. No, it doesn't. It doesn't come across as a, as a fake voice. It comes across as his actual voice. And he's just like, that's the note. That's the note I got to sing. It's going to hurt to get up there and I'm going to do it. But that's it, the right note for this song. Interestingly, I thought the secrets in the telling um, there's a there's a part in the vocals that he's reaching and trying to hit a note in the same way that uh, Reese Roper from Five Iron Frenzy <laughs> would like try and reach and hit a note. And it really reminded me of him and just like the way that just like a one part of that song. I was like, oh, there's a little Reese is in there a little bit. I can hear that. But yeah, I mean, no reason to hate this, really. The only thing that I could say is like, yeah. It's maybe at the most the biggest complaint I have is that it's a it's a little mediocre in times where it's just yeah. like it, it's it's just it's not trying too hard to be anything different. But also this type of music shouldn't try that hard to be very different. I don't think. Yeah, that's the thing. That's that's a big thing for like what I enjoyed about this is that m- my expectations for it were never for anything beyond a good hook. And so the songs that fall flat are the ones that just don't get that hook across. And I think at least half, if not more than half of this record, especially if you include the bonus material, do. They do have that hook. They have that thing. There's at least that chorus in each song that puts it over the edge to being memorable, catchy, and enjoyable to listen to. And there's just only a couple of songs towards the end that are like, that didn't do anything. It didn't have the hook. Yeah. So, yeah, we each gave it a rating already. I said 3.5. You said 3.75. Um, that's fair. I think that's pretty good. And, uh, yeah. I'm, uh, any other closing thoughts? No. All it was right. fun. Yeah. I, I was glad to listen to this record um, and enjoyed it more than I anticipated. So, next time we do that, we do 2006, maybe we'll do something that's not emo because we've done it like three times now. <laughs> Very strong year for that kind of stuff, but. All right, everyone, thank you so much for listening. Patreon.com slash PunkLottoPod. Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook at PunkLottoPod. PunkLottoPod, gmail.com, and our voicemail line, 202-688-PUNK. Didn't plug all that at the top, but there it is. Uh, give us a rating on Spotify or iTunes. I saw this week that uh, Stitcher is shutting down entirely, which is surprising. They were our number four outlet. Uh, for podcasting it was like only like five percent of our downloads came from there but still like stitcher was the other name before spotify got into you know podcasting um so sucks to see them go they had definitely had a way nicer user interface than the apple Podcasts, but um yeah which makes me wonder are podcasts dying now uh we'll see but uh because spotify like laid off a bunch of people earlier this year Though the people that were laid off, I think, were working for another company under the Spotify 
umbrella like companies that spotify bought and i think that they were laying that stuff off probably more in redundancy so i don't know if it's just that the market's coming down a little bit i don't know we'll see but we'll always be diy here unless someone wants to pay us lots and lots of money (laughs) (laughs) we don't have the conviction that uh chris caraba has (laughs) hey i'd take vagrant level money for a podcast network though (laughs) all right everyone thank you so much and we will talk to you later To order Punk, call the number on your screen. Rush delivery is available. Remember, this special offer is not sold in stores.